but COVID has meant that there's tons of things we can't do, like meet in person, go to conferences, have guest speakers. However, technology is enabling us this week to have uh, someone who's very dear to us uh, speak in our church, which is Bill Johnson. And uh, that's what I'm introducing here. It's actually a Bill Johnson in conversation with other friends of ours, Pete and Kim Carter. Uh, and just to give you some context for this, uh, about 11 years ago, Nick Treadgold and I went to Redding, California, to Bethel Church because of everything we'd heard. And that was the beginning of us of a very powerful journey. Uh, from that day, we started to see a flow of healings. We had angelic visitation, the level of presence of God in our environment increased, all, all kinds of things that we're still learning and still journeying on in terms of developing uh, a church culture. Alongside that, uh, long-term friends of ours, Pete and Kim Carter, had also been to Reading uh, and been influenced by the church there and Bill's ministry and the team around him. Uh, and so they've been they've been kind of a bit ahead of us on this journey. And we've often had Pete, particularly Pete, alongside us coming up here speaking in Hope Church. And normally he would have been here by now this year, and uh, maybe even uh, due to come again in the autumn. But obviously with the restrictions, that's not been possible. So packaging all that together, um, both of us have been uh, influenced by the same place. And out of that has emerged two new uh, networks, really, two new streams of churches, one based here in Scotland called Kingdom Legacy and one based there in their church, Eastgate, uh, which we are part of both of these. And that one is called uh, Living Fire. And so Living Fire has put together, Pete and Kim with Bill put together this video, this uh, thing for us just as for the living fire churches so us and a very few other churches get the privilege of being part of this it, it, it's a it's a good length so we're going to do it over two weeks it's a conversation so it's very accessible but it's full of, of rich stuff I, i've been through it i always get blessed challenged uh, and, and really helped by stuff that bill says even stuff i've heard before so you're in for a treat uh, this is Bill Johnson, uh, interviewed by Pete and Kim Carter, talking around the theme of freedom. Uh, it is going to bless you and help you. It's a, a great pleasure and a privilege today to uh, to be here with you, but also to have Bill Johnson with us. And uh, Bill's a friend of ours, and we're going to have a conversation uh, around the, the theme of freedom and um Kim and I had the privilege of uh, spending three months in, uh, in Redding, California at Bethel Church back in 2009 where, to be honest, they, we were welcomed with open arms and it was just an extraordinary experience. And, and Bill, you opened up the, basically a floodgates of blessing for us and we're so grateful for that. And, um, and at the end of our three months when we were ready to come back to the UK, we, Kim and I were talking and saying, well, what, how do we sum this up? What, what, what did we learn? We'd learned so much, we'd experienced so much. And we said there was one word that that encapsulated it all, and that was the word freedom, that we'd, we'd experienced a, a, an environment of freedom, a culture of freedom, a theology of freedom that certainly liberated us personally uh, in huge ways, but also actually taught us something as we came back to the UK and to Europe with a determination, and also we felt a, a mandate from heaven to create an environment of freedom such as we had experienced so that other people could learn how to live in freedom as God intended. So um, so we want to chat with you about uh, how you and Bethel have created that, that environment of freedom 
um, the core beliefs that underpin it and are expressed through it and the generosity that flows through it. So, so Kim, you had some ideas just yes. to feed Bill the questions. One of the things I realised in the three months um, was this wasn't just freedom from, it was freedom to be. And uh, I just wondered if you could unpack that a bit for us, Bill. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's actually that thinking, specific thinking, has been on my mind this last week in unusual ways, actually. I've just been pondering the nature of freedom and uh, not realizing we would be discussing that today. Uh, but we're, we are, it's not freedom if I'm just freed from something. I must be freed unto something. And if you take a prisoner and you get him out of prison and you release him and he's homeless and doesn't have a job, and uh, still struggling with addictions or whatever, then he's not really free. He's not free until he's released into something, until he's restored back into society. And as believers, uh, you know, we are set free from sin. We're set free from addictions, all those things. But beyond that, we are set into the lifestyle of Christ, into his character, into his nature, into his mandate. And real freedom is seen when you have the... Well, it would be Isaiah 61, the most despised and rejected of society become the rebuilders of society. They're freed from something, and they're freed unto something. And that's the great privilege for every believer. Every believer has a place of unusual significance. And uh, so as ministers of the gospel, uh, we've got to look beyond uh, the conversion into the lifestyle that demonstrates they are converted and uh, so you said it right. They're set free to be something. And that really is the mandate that we have and probably is the nature of discipleship, probably is the essence of what it means to make disciples. And um, Galatians 5 verse 1 says uh, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Um, that used to confuse me, that verse, until I thought, oh, I thought it's saying the same thing. But it, it's not. It's actually saying you are freed for a purpose of, of freedom. And then it goes on to say, don't allow yourselves to be made slaves again effectively. And, um, you know, I, I'm amazed when I read the book, book of Exodus how, how willing the, the, the Israelites were to go back to Egypt, you know, so somehow slavery had an attraction for them. And that, that's true for Christians as well, isn't it? So, so um, but, but again, you've actually, when we came to Bethel, we experienced something there that says, actually, this is, this is your core purpose you know to live in freedom and this is the power with which to do it and as i said you, those core beliefs that you you teach there um we'd love you just to unpack those a little bit for us and for for the people listening yeah yeah um the in looking back over our over the last 40 years of ministry in weaverville which is an hour from here uh daughter church of bethel and then my 25 years here just in reviewing, I was trying to identify what the what the core values were that just drove drove us. Is probably not the best word, but uh, launched us. And it was number one, God is good. Uh, number two, uh, nothing is impossible. Number three, everything was accomplished at the cross. Everything we'll ever need throughout eternity was purchased at Calvary. And then number four, every person is significant. And, uh, but it, I wasn't content to just to identify that helped me, but, uh, but true beliefs create behaviors. And we, I wanted to have measurable behaviors, um, to see in, in what degree we truly embrace that particular truth. So, uh, because God is good, I have to dream big. 
I have to be known. My dreaming will always be consistent with my understanding of his goodness because his goodness empowers me. It frees me from, but it frees me into, into the discovery of who he is, his nature. And that is best seen uh, oftentimes in the life of a believer uh, through their dreams, not their dreams at night. Uh, it may include that, but that's not the point. It's that we dream big concerning what God would do in the earth. I was reading out of Proverbs 24 earlier this week, and it basically said this, that wisdom enables you to see the outcome of a matter. And for that reason, wisdom is the source of hope. And so when you see God's goodness, you have this perception of the outcome of a matter. You know, I don't know what's going on. I don't know. I'm certainly not in charge, but I know one who is, and I know the outcome is going to be good. And because of that, hope is the is the is the product, if you will. It's the it's what really sustains me in these seasons. So uh, the goodness of God is measurable by my uh, my responsibility, in a sense, to dream big. The second one is uh, nothing is impossible with God. And all these are, are things every believer would just nod yes to because we've heard them all of our lives. The breakdown comes uh, in the behavior. And so because if I truly believe that nothing is impossible with God, I will take more risk. Hmm. I will take greater risk so that the one who knows no restriction, no impossibility, will be given an opportunity to invade something and display the wonder of his name. I have that responsibility. I, I don't consider these uh, just luxury items as, as well as they may be. They're responsibilities. And uh, so because uh, nothing is impossible with God, I have to take risk. I have to give him the occasion, uh, the opportunity to, uh, to display his wonder. And the third one is everything was purchased at Calvary. And uh, because um, if you think about it, all, in heaven, 100 billion years from now, we will be thriving in the wonder, the beauty of his presence. But all of that was purchased way back at the cross when he died in my place. He took my sins. So because everything was purchased then, and I don't understand always what's happening in my life, I owe him my trust. My, my understanding of him having settled everything at Calvary is measured by me trusting him big time. I just, the, over, the overall thing for my life is I just, trust, I just trust him. I may not know what's going on with this pandemic. I may not know what's going on in the political arena, all these different things. But the bottom line is, is I am anchored because he settled everything ahead of time, knowing everything that would be needed throughout all eternity. It's already been dealt with. I have reason to trust him big time. And I owe him that kind of trust. And then the last one is uh, every person is significant. And it's important perhaps for us to say I am significant. It's not just you all. It's just every one of us have a place of unusual significance. Every one of us actually has the opportunity to carry an aspect of God's nature. We were made in his image. So we carry an aspect of God's nature that no one else will fully represent because he is that big and we are that unique. 
And uh, so every person is really needed to uh, really demonstrate the nature of Christ in the earth. So uh, the point is, is um, that because I am significant, it has to be measured not in my greatness, but in my willingness to serve. And because of my significance, no position is too low. Mm-hmm. And it says in John 13, it says, Jesus, he was thinking about something. He was thinking about, I'm about to return to the Father, and everything has been handed over to me. So he's, he's actually thinking thoughts about his own significance. I'm about to return to the Father where I came from, and everything has now been placed under my charge. He already had everything bef- before he became a man. Uh, it's my opinion he laid all of that aside to become a man and then re-inherited it through his obedience. So here he is thinking these thoughts of significance. And the very next phrase was, and he took a towel, put it over his arm, and he turned and he washed the disciples' feet. And uh, you would think, um, considering his own significance, he would have done some bold, you know, the way we would have done it, the way, uh, you know, would have done it in our world, you know, Wall Street or whatever, athletics, it would have been some great feat. And it was, but it was only a great feat from heaven's perspective. And that is that he stooped with a towel, a basin of water, and he washed the disciples' feet. So my understanding of my own significance is actually measurable in my willingness to serve big time. And uh, so anyway, those are the four, uh, four things that, we, that I uh, kind of uh, wrestle through to understand so that I can better communicate what's happening here. I love the point about, um, you know, because I am significant, I can serve because people look for their significance in um, position or what they do. But rather than um, what Jesus has done and who they are, I just think I'm a I'm a child of the King. Nothing, you know, nothing can what whatever I'm doing that doesn't matter. Yeah, that's yeah, that's exactly right. Jesus tried on several occasions to get that through to us. You know, the disciples were arguing as to who was the greatest, and he pointed to the child. He one time he pointed to the servant of all. And so the point is, is heaven has a different value system than we do, and uh, and that's what the renewed mind is: is us learning. Uh, how to think mm-hmm. consistently with his value system, but yeah, you're right. That's it's uh, it's the it's the willingness to serve and to serve big, and it doesn't diminish our identity. It's not like it's not like this humiliating posture. It's instead, from God's perspective, it's the most it's the most refreshing, rewarding. And everybody knows this when they've sacrificed to give somebody, and, and they see how that gift turned their life around. There's such great reward, just emotionally, knowing that you you played a significant role in somebody's life. So it, it just has to become a lifestyle. And it, it fits in with the um, responsibility to dream as well, because sometimes we think, "Oh, is that a selfish thing?" Um, and one of the things we find with we have a we call it School of Supernatural Life, but School of Supernatural here at Eastgate, which after we visited you, you know, we we got going with and. Um, we find that it's one of the challenges is with, with our students is, is to get them to dare to dream um, because there are various things about it that, that some of them have, have had their dreams squashed, but also some people think it's arrogant to dream. Um, and uh, that was one thing. That, but actually, if, if our dreams have come from God, they will actually not just be to build us up, but actually to, to establish his kingdom across the earth. And I think that was one of the 
things that we've had to sort of help people understand is, is that dreaming is, is not arrogant. So I don't know what you've got any thoughts around that. Oh, yeah, well, it's huge. And because the church has embraced that way of thinking that dreaming is arrogant, we have unbelievers leading the way in oftentimes in technology and all these different mm-hmm. sciences, you know, they lead the way with new inventions and it really should be the believers who are directly related to the creator. You know, I don't know that we have to do everything, but we should certainly be involved in that creative role because we've been free to dream. And uh, it's just a, it's just a great misunderstanding. The, the selflessness that Jesus lived with was not um, self-abasement. It wasn't uh, self-criticism. It wasn't self-rejection. It wasn't that at all. It was it was so completely different the lifestyle that he modeled for us, and uh, and he had he was working unto something continuously, building the twelve into a group that could carry the responsibility to bring transformation to a planet, and uh, that came out of the dream of his heart. But you can't, you know, the disciples. I don't know that the, any of the twelve walked around life before they met Jesus, thinking they were going to change the world. But after they started hanging out with him, they started arguing as to who was the greatest. Where did that come from? That that capacity or that dream, that desire for greatness, came from being with Jesus. Now they had an ungodly perception of greatness, but Jesus never rebuked their desire for greatness. He only retrained them as to how God looks at significance, how God looks at greatness. So that's that's what it comes down to. Our, our our freedom is from something, but when we're truly free, we're free unto something. We're free to dream again. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, our dreams now, I want my dreams to be consistent with his will. Um, there's this great passage, Solomon, uh, Solomon, when he dedicated the temple, this is one of my favorite verses uh, in the Bible. I talk about it in, in, uh, in that book, uh, I did uh, Dreaming with God. But there's this, Solomon uh, is dedicating the temple and he says, since the time God brought Israel out of Egypt, he never chose a city in which to build a temple. The very next phrase, he chose David. And it was in the heart of my father David. So think through the logic of that verse. God didn't choose a city, he chose a man. And look what he found in the heart of a man. Mm. Wow. I... I I think we, I don't want to dream things that God has to, you know, that somehow controls, you know, God. I'm not trying to persuade him of of my will. I just want to be free enough in him that my dreams represent his will. Hmm. And he found that in David. He found it in him. He said, he said, I didn't choose a city. I chose a man. And look what I found in the heart of a man. It's an extraordinary thought. And uh, I, I think the Lord is looking to find certain things in us. I call these dreams the offspring of a relationship with God. They're, they're, not, they're not commanded. You know, he does give us commands. Uh, but the dreams come more as the offspring of the relationship. They're the fruit of walking with God. I'm, I'm starting to think like him. I'm starting to feel like him. My, my perception is, is like him. So I'm going to dream in a way that honors him. And uh, I, I never want him to just give in to my will. I, I, I'm not in this for that. But I do want to be responsible and make sure that my dream life 
my thought life, my anticipations, my expectations, that they represent his nature well. So I, I think the dream thing is huge. Yeah, do you want to talk about your experience with the students? Oh, it's quite, yes, it's, uh, we, you know, in year one, it's sort of God is good. And then in year two, we start asking our students um, to to dream and uh, and uh, it's it really tests their belief on the father heart of God, actually, you know, that does he really want to, you know, partner with what's in our heart? Um, yes, it's, it's, uh, it's an it is such a practical outworking of the goodness of understanding the goodness of God. And I love actually what I did love is that your I love that phrase that you've just used that he, that our dreams are the offspring of a relationship with him. You know that that if we're in a relationship with him, we can trust our hearts. Yes. Yeah. That's that's right. You know we don't. Uh, I have uh, in behind my house here. We bought a new home a couple of years ago. And the previous owner planted these three redwood trees, uh, one for each of his daughters when they were born. And so that was, you know, 20, 25 years ago. So they're good-sized trees now. Um, They drink probably 40 to 50 gallons of water a day. Well, we had a drought here a few years ago. Nobody would look at those trees and call them selfish because they drank 50 gallons of water when we really needed the water elsewhere because they were designed to drink 50 gallons of water a day. That was their design. And so they're not, they're not being selfish when they live according to design. And what's respon- our responsibility is to discover what we were designed for. Mm-hmm. And when we step into what we were designed for, it's not necessarily, I mean, we can always mess it up, but it's not necessarily selfish to dream. It's my nature in Christ to dream. I have a responsibility to illustrate his nature. You know, where I first started to learn this is when I became a dad. Mm. When I became a dad and I wanted to just do anything. I mean, I would save up and, you know, buy my kid that mountain bike that they were wanting so badly. And and it was just so much fun. The most fun in the world was to be able to fulfill their dreams. Well, I certainly am not a better father than he is. I've heard, I've heard, here's another one that, that kind of trips people up a bit. I've heard people say all through my growing up years, not from my parents, but from other uh, believers, uh, that God is not interested in our wants. He's in, interested in our, in our needs. So that makes him more like the caregiver of an orphanage. Mm-hmm. Uh, make sure you have a cot to sleep on, three meals a day, and a coat for the winter. You know, it's, it's you take care of basic needs. But that's not what he said. Uh, John, uh, it, Jesus, four times in the Gospel of John, said, whatever you want will be given to you. And uh, so what I believe God's doing with all of us is he's purging us, he's refining us, he's purifying us so he can actually trust our wants, so that our wants actually represent him well. Because he's the father. You know, I, I just, I listen now with my grandkids, you know, I, I just try to pay attention to their dreams, you know, just in conversation. And uh, my birthday, uh, we have my birthday party's coming up in another week. And uh, and um, for my birthday, I buy all my kids and my grandkids uh, gifts. And uh, so I pay attention throughout the year trying to figure out what they value, what they're interested in, what they like, because I just want to contribute to who they're becoming. And it's, uh, it's, I, I do that because I have, I have only one lifetime to illustrate to them 
my understanding of what our Heavenly Father is like. He is, he is one who loves to invest in who he made us to be. We all carry design. And uh, so anyway, we've, uh, we've bought gifts for, uh, we have one more person to buy for, but we, we, we're buying according to all of their values, their interests, their, the things that they enjoy. And uh, it's just so much fun to, uh, to be a dad, a, a grandpa that can step in and, and, uh, and fulfill, uh, fulfill that part of their life. Yeah. So, and, and I certainly don't do that better than he does. You know. I just think it's beautiful. Well, I love that that phrase about um, you know your your um, when you're a, a parent, it's your one opportunity to show the heart of God. I, I, you know, in you know, um, I, yeah, that really brings um, such a high value to parenting as well. And also, it just shows how important it is the the father heart. Of God messages, you know that that I don't I don't think you can get there if you regard God as your master rather than your father, and um, and so many Christians have been brought up with with that idea that the you know the, the prime purpose is to serve God, which in one sense it is, but that's like you said earlier that service comes out of actually I'm a I'm a son a daughter of the living God I have significance therefore I'm secure, and um, I, I think one of the things that was really impacted us at the end of our, our time with you the three months in Bethel was that we were just recounting everything and um, we were sitting together um, where we were living at that moment in time and we got this freedom we thought oh you could sum this all up in freedom and then I had, I had a it, I'm, I'm sure it's a thought from God because it hadn't entered my brain before um, I think it was a word of wisdom a word of knowledge one of those things and I turned to Kim and I said you know we've lived free from suspicion for three months and I thought why is, why is that thought coming to my mind? And, um, and a few days after that, we, you gave us the opportunity to, to share with the whole of, of the leadership team that used to meet on a Wednesday morning uh, our experience of Bethel, what we'd experienced, and also not just that, but what God had told us to do, the experiences we've had with God. Um, you know, we could say that Kim had an encounter with, with an angel called Gold, we were there when Bob Jones was actually telling the story of, of the extraordinary story of the release of a thousand, you know, um, e- young eagles and the you know the eagles had left yep. the nest. Uh, it, it was just an amazing time, and you you actually laid hands on us alongside the students and, and commissioned us. And but you, you opened up, and we were able to tell this whole story, which I think we were almost hesitant, reluctant, because what what will people think of us with with such a big story, such a big dream, such a big big calling, and your, the, the whole team, you and the whole team, just your, your response was to say, oh, that's amazing. How can we help you? Um, and we didn't meet one little small speck of suspicion, just, just this belief and we are, we are, we're going to help you. And when we came back to the UK, I suddenly realised, oh, this is, this is different here um, because we'd embrace suspicion as, as, as a... I would say people regard suspicion in, in the, as wisdom rather than false wisdom. Exactly. And we had to be careful when we came home of who we told the stories to for the response that we would, we would get. Now, with our own church, it was amazing. They said, this is God, we'll do it. But actually, I suddenly thought, oh, this, this issue of suspicion is a huge enemy um, towards calling and dreams. I don't know if you've got any thoughts about that um, that would help uh, folks looking in. You're right. It it is. It masquerades as wisdom. It's uh, suspicion. All of that is actually connected in some way to the 
words jealousy and envy. And they uh, sometimes run rampant in the church. And here's an interesting concept in James chapter 3. Um, he talks about envy, uh, self-seeking. And then he says, he says this phrase, which should help us. For such wisdom, he calls it wisdom. Such wisdom that does not come from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. So, but the key phrase for me that I'd never seen before until this last year, such wisdom. So the re, the appeal of jealousy, suspicion, uh, envy, the appeal is that it appears to be reasonable. It appears to be a, a an intellectual gift to see that clearly. And because it masquerades in that way, believers easily receive it thinking it's actually a virtue. And anytime we call something that's evil a virtue, we give it a good name. Mm -hmm. We give it not only permission to stay, but we're actually inviting it to set down roots until it affects our soul. It actually begins to affect our personality. And so that's why as leaders, uh, this issue of freedom is is uh, huge because freedom means that I... My success in God is not threatened by your success in God. In fact, it's quite the opposite. If we can grow together, each of us becoming who we're supposed to be, each of us accomplishing what we've been given to accomplish, and do it in a complementary way, we each kind of set a, a draft. You know, uh, when you're passed on the freeway by a big truck, your car speeds up, you know. It's, uh, it just creates that draft for us to, to, to go better, to go faster. And, uh, and uh, you're strong in some seasons when I'm weak and vice versa. And when we learn to, uh, to cooperate together in this dream, in this freedom, uh, we always excel. We always advance. And uh, so, but anyway, the, the appeal of suspicion, the appeal of jealousy, of envy, of uh, just that self-inflated way of, of living is that it masquerades as wisdom. And uh, so, if we can if we can expose that, uh, we can expose that. Then we can we as leaders, both for ourselves and the people around us, we can help people to live with uh, with true Christ like freedom. Yeah, because if we don't do that, there's a retreat back into slavery, isn't it? Slavery to fear, jealousy. Um, that that verse you're talking about, wisdom, in, it's in James three. Is is something that God's impressed upon me as well? You think that, that's I, I don't. I don't really want that sort of wisdom because it's, it's coming from the wrong sort. Of, that, that, that's not something to embrace, but actually it is so easily embraced because, you know, temptation is tempting, as, as they say. It has a, something that appeals within it. Well, that was just a crazy amount of truth to, to get our heads around in, in one week. So yeah, I'm personally probably going to take a couple of years, and I've heard quite a lot of that before, as I'm sure some of you have. But it's rich. It's always good to hear Bill on his pillars of truth. Um, what's earthly wisdom as opposed to heaven's wisdom? Uh, the stuff about discovering our identity, not getting into competition and suspicion. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. Transformational revelation right there. So uh, I enjoyed that. I hope you did. And we interrupted at that point because there's a whole other section to come, which we're going to do next week where Bill is going to answer the question Pete is introducing there about the culture of honour. And Bill has so much gold to share about that. He helps us not fall into the traps that, that can happen around that word and about that culture. 
um, uh, personally very helpful to me. I'm sure it will be to us. So look forward to that next week. 